Let me start the sermon with a question. It's the same question that I asked a few weeks ago. How would you describe the good life? I think for most people, if they were honest, their answer would include things like comfort, material things, acceptance, success, or some combination of those. And there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong, with any of these in themselves, but there's more. There is more to the good life. We see in the Bible and from the God who reveals himself through the Bible that the good life, our best life, is what God has planned for Christians. Being loved by God, being rescued by God, being transformed by God, being called by God to love and serve him, and being called by God to love and serve other people. But you should be aware that God's best life for us includes struggle. We continue our sermon series through the book of Colossians. We've already seen a great model prayer. We've seen an amazing set of statements about Jesus. For example, that Jesus is our creator and our sustainer. He's our rescuer and more. Today we'll look at the struggles of a Christian. So remain seated and let's read together our verses for today from the screen. And today we're reading Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5. Let's read this together. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Many parents have children ages, uh, well, for stepping stones, you can dismiss them at this time. Now, if you wonder why we're crossing a chapter boundary in our verses today, Some people think that's a big no-no. Remember that when the Bible was first written, none of the books of the Bible had chapters or verses. 
That was added much, much later to make it easier to refer to particular parts of a book. Today we're going to look at several key thoughts that Paul gives in his letter, focusing on these two aspects of struggle. First, the struggle for other Christians and other people, and you see we got those, I have those two points on the slide. And then secondly, the struggle of every Christian. So you have the struggle for and the struggle of. The struggle for refers to the struggle involved in helping others. The struggle of refers to the struggle that we each experience personally. So let's start with the struggle for other Christians and other people. Paul begins verse 24 saying, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now if you've read about Paul, you remember that Paul in his missionary journeys and his missionary work had been beaten, that is beaten with rods. He had been falsely accused. He had been put in jail. He had been stoned, meaning people actually took rocks and threw them at him trying to kill him. And he had been shipwrecked. And he's writing this letter from prison. Paul has suffered as he has shared the good news of the gospel, and he is not complaining at all. In fact, he's rejoicing. He's very willing to suffer these things in the hopes and expectation of more people hearing and responding to God's good news. Now, let me just pause here and say that this, quote, rejoicing and suffering may sound totally foreign to you. Some people would say that Paul is not right in the head if he is suffering, if he's in rejoicing in his suffering. Well, here's why. You see, modern Western culture that we are all a part of seeks to avoid suffering at all costs. And it's hard for you and I to not be affected by this thinking. I should also add that modern Western culture does not help us handle suffering well at all. People have done studies comparing our culture current culture with other cultures and say these other cultures give much more help than modern Western culture for its members in terms of dealing with suffering. Well, here's why it's important. Because suffering is unavoidable. We live in a broken world filled with broken people and there's going to be suffering. Well, handling suffering in a God-centered, God-informed way can be a big witness to the people around us. Now, that's not the topic of the sermon today, but I can tell you that handling suffering in a God-honoring way, God-centered way, was part of the witness of the early Christian church to the people around them. Well, Paul goes on to say, after he says that he rejoices in his sufferings, he goes on to say, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. Now, the word that grabs my attention in that sentence is the word lacking. We usually, when we hear the word lack, we think, well, something's not right. It's not sufficient. It's not good. So let me just be clear. Paul is not implying in any way that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is in some way insufficient. That we need to add to it. Let me say that again. He's not implying in any way that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is insufficient. Now, there are several other religions that say what Jesus did is and that you need to add to it, add to what Jesus did. The Bible calls that heresy. The Bible is clear 
that Jesus' suffering on our behalf totally satisfied God's justice and bought us our spiritual freedom and adoption. There's nothing you and I can add to Jesus' work, and the Bible is also clear that nothing but Jesus' work gives us these benefits. So here's what I think Paul is trying to say with his statement. And then you'll see it on the slide. Just as Jesus suffered for us, God's plan is that we, at times, would follow Jesus' pattern and suffer for others. Now, I realized only this morning that that little bit, two words, at times, it's in the wrong place in the sentence. Because the way you read it now, you could be, well, I follow Jesus at times. No, no, we're supposed to follow Jesus all the time. So here's how it ought to read. Just as Jesus suffered for us, God's plan is that we would follow Jesus' pattern and at times would suffer for others. Now, in one sense, this sentence sounds totally unappealing, right? Because who wants to suffer? But in another sense, we embrace this. Religious or not, people embrace this. We'll see how in just a minute. Now, think about this. Jesus is no longer physically present on the earth. He returned to heaven. Jesus called Christians his body. So Christians, in a sense, are Jesus' physical presence on the earth. Jesus suffered for us because he loves us. Jesus calls us to suffer, and then he gives us love for God and love for others to motivate us. So now let's go back to this thing where I said we already embrace this idea. How? In what way do you and I already embrace this kind of suffering? Actually, Mike said gave an example of a kind. Most people, religious or not, have seen someone else voluntarily deny themselves and even willingly step into uncomfortable and you can even say dangerous situations to suffer because they care for someone else. But you can look at that, you can think, all right, but that's, those are exceptional situations. Is there an ordinary everyday one that we can see? And I believe there is. Most people, when they become parents, at some point begin to realize how their parents denied themselves, willingly stepped into uncomfortable situations, suffered because they loved their children. So, if you've had that, and you don't even have to be a parent to realize that. I've heard many uh, young adults, but especially ones that have been parents, ask their parents questions like, did I do what, you know, what my child was doing? Oh, my goodness. I, did I ever say thank you for not, you know, not going off on me on that and being patient? We, if, you've, if you had that revelation... Say thank you to your parents. That's an ordinary, everyday situation. Now, if you noticed, in the, on the slide, I had the word suffer in quotes. And that's because suffering covers a, a huge spectrum, all kinds of different experiences. On the one end, it's the small things like irritations and just being uncomfortable. And as, it, as you move up, there's trials and hardships, and then you get to the other end, it's extreme. Extreme pain, extreme emotional suffering, other things. It's there. It covers. And we're called 
Just to be clear, what we're being called to do is to suffer for others. Now, also to be clear, there's no merit in us suffering for others. We don't get brownie points from God. Here's, here's how it works. The nature of true agape love, that is, true godlike love, is an other-centeredness. It includes a willingness to serve and help others, even if it includes enduring painful situations. And what we see is that God leads the way in this. He doesn't sit back all comfortable and say, well, I want you to suffer. No, he leads the way for us. And so what we see is that Paul rejoices as he suffers for the sake of others. And with with what I've talked about, I hope that what he says begins to make sense. Now, Paul goes on to say that he's a minister of God's good news according to the stewardship from God. Paul isn't the only one with a calling. He, He calls himself a minister. We sometimes think that I'm a pastor. That's a special category. Missionaries are special category. You have a special calling. Sometimes we talk about career as a calling. But each of us has a calling from God for our lives. And I'm not here referring just to career. But here's the question. Have you asked God what your calling is? You see, I believe that every Christian has a calling of some kind. And what I, by that I mean some form of giving to others, praying for others, serving others. Some calling of some kind. Now, if you're approaching retirement or in retirement, God doesn't put calling on the shelf. And say, well, you've done enough. You're good. Just focus on yourself now. Okay, he doesn't do that. Your calling may change, but you still have one. And we st- each one of us still has one. Well, then Paul talks about mystery. In verse 26, Paul talks about the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And in verse 27, this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is the mystery? Well, part of the mystery was the way that God chose to redeem and restore. That God chose to fix what's broken through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the gift of his Spirit. Remember last week I said there are four words that can describe all of human history. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Well, creation and fall are described in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. That means it's the rest of the Bible, Genesis 4 to the end of Revelation, that talk about redemption and restoration. Something big in God's mind for us. And God, God, what he did in the Old Testament was point forward to what Jesus would do. We then see what Jesus did, and then we're told what it means and how we are to live. And so God's plan is to redeem and restore through Jesus' suffering his life, death, and resurrection. But God's plan doesn't make much sense. It doesn't match the wisdom of the world. In fact, God's wisdom seems foolish to anyone who's not in a personal relationship with God. It's no surprise then that a Christian who is living life God's way will at times be attractive to others because there are elements of of God's character and everything that are attractive to all people. But then the other side... There are also times when that Christian will, what they're doing and saying will be confusing or even offensive 
to others because it doesn't make sense. So that's one part of the mystery. Another part of the mystery is that God's good news of redemption and restoration was for Jews and for Gentiles. That is, for all people. God gave lots of clues in the Old Testament about including Gentiles in his spiritual family. But most of the Jews in Paul's day didn't recognize those clues. Paul goes on to say in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So I think that's up on the slide. So notice the pronouns. I, his, he, and me. Referring to Paul, Jesus, and then again at the end to Paul. So now reread, and you see how I have it there, uh, the, the replacing the pronouns with the names. For this, Paul toils, works, struggling with all the energy of Jesus, that Jesus powerfully works in Paul. So no wonder Paul seemed to have so much energy, because it wasn't just his energy. He's working with the power and the energy that Jesus gave him. So here's a question. Do you and I work with all the energy of Jesus? Only way that you and I can have the energy of Je that Jesus provides is if we depend on Jesus and if we follow his leading. When we do, he gives that energy for us. Then in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul again speaks of his struggle on behalf of the Christians at Colossae and Laodicea. And we see Paul's goal in his struggle in his work. And we, and we see his goal in two places. In verse 28, he says his goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. And then in chapter 2, his goal is for them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So let's look at that first one. His goal is that people would be, be mature in Christ. When you first become a Christian, you experience the joy of forgiveness. And I could say probably, but I think better is almost certainly, we don't have a good, solid grasp of the truths of the Bible. We may know some Bible facts. But here's what happens as a person matures in their relationship with Jesus. They learn more about Jesus. That's one part. But then they begin more and more to live life every day with Jesus every day and not just occasionally. They begin to trust Jesus more. They pray more for themselves and for others. They depend on Jesus more. And they live life more based on Jesus' work, on his forgiveness that he offers and the, our acceptance from God that he provides. Now, that other goal, that second goal, was to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of Christ. Sometimes I wish Paul had taken a class on how to speak plain Greek. Okay, just to make it simple. Paul is talking about spiritual riches. And these are riches that you and I are given by God. And here's a particular one that he highlights he talks about assurance. There is an assurance or a certainty of God's love, and that certainty is more and more unshakable 
as you and I grow and mature spiritually. Our, if you're, our growth as, as humans, our growth spiritually, it isn't nice and smooth. Physically, if you're growing, sometimes you hit a growth spurt. Shoot up. My brother grew almost a foot in one year. I, I, I now think, my goodness, he must have hurt a lot, okay, as that was going on. And then you stop growing up and you start growing out as you get older. Mature, as, you, as you grow spiritually, it's not a nice, smooth, every day and in every way I'm getting better and better. No, it's up and down or down and up. As it goes on, it's, it's inconsistent. And the more we learn about ourselves, the more we see how easily we get distracted from what God is calling us to do and other things like that. And so this assurance is not a small thing. It's a very big thing as we realize that there's, you know, and, and you look at, for example, in Romans 8 where Paul talks about this and he waxes eloquent. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing, including me. Well, that's his point here. That we can have this assurance and this certainty. Well, now we come to the second part of the struggle. The struggle of every Christian. Well, Christians have many different kinds of struggles. It take a long time to list them all. And even longer to try to, to work with them. So today I want to focus just on what we see in chapter 2, verse 4. There Paul says, and I'm paraphrasing this first part, Paul is struggling so that you, so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, to delude is to deceive. It's to lead down the wrong path, to take you away from the way you should be going. But here's the next question. What's a plausible argument? Well, here's my definition. A plausible argument is any religion, any philosophy, any teaching. That covers a lot of territory. First, that some way seems to be good or appealing. That's the plausible part. It has some appeal, but is contrary in some way with God's truth as revealed in the Bible. So again, any religion, any philosophy, any teaching. That includes advertisements and music. And books, and magazines, and movies, the messages that are in them, that covers a lot. That in some way seems appealing, but is contrary in some way, maybe in many ways, with God's truth as revealed in the Bible. Well, let me give you a couple of examples. The Judaizers' message was plausible in Jesus' day. These were Jewish people, maybe even Jewish Christians, and their basic thought was Jesus is good. That's a really good thing. But you also need to keep the, the Old Testament law. Jesus plus Old Testament law. And you see this addressed in the book of Galatians and in Acts 15. In Galatians, Paul just rips them to shreds and says, absolutely not. Acts 15, the church leaders also flat deny. You don't add anything to Jesus. It's Jesus only. That's one example. Another one later in the early Christian church, Gnosticism was a plausible argument. This was a Greek philosophy 
that was mixed with Christianity during the time of the early church, and in part, its appeal was that if you work really hard, you can have a higher knowledge. You can be one of the elite few that had this higher knowledge. And isn't there an appeal to to think, oh, I'm one of the few, the privileged. I've gained this special knowledge that nobody else has. <clears throat> it moved away from the Bible. And so there are many other philosophies and religions that might be plausible. Now, there are some things that we hear we just immediately reject. We don't like. But many are appealing. <clears throat> but in some way, they reject either the God of the Bible or the Jesus of the Bible and what he did. Well, let me give you one more. Today, modern Western thought is a plausible argument. Okay, It's what our current culture is based on. And millions, hundreds of millions of people have embraced it. But it is a plausible argument. Well, let me give you a little plug here. I'll mention it again later again. But today, 11.30, adult Sunday school class, we start a class, a study of our current culture using a book called Strange New World by Carl Truman. And there's a video series that goes with it. And we're going to be looking, trying to look from a biblical perspective at our current culture. <clears throat> now, since by definition, a plausible argument is contrary to God's word, God calls it evil. Well, here's another question. Why do plausible arguments appeal to us? And by definition, they do. There's some appeal. Well, it's because the evil out there, and by evil out there, I'm talking about plausible arguments, is attractive to the evil in us. That is, it's attractive to our sinful, selfish nature. These arguments are attractive. Even though they're contrary to God's word, because there's a part of us that's contrary to God and God's ways. Well, the same is true for any temptations that we're presented with. Temptations to lust or to lie or to cheat. Evil out there is attractive <clears throat> to the evil in us. If it wasn't attractive, it wouldn't be a temptation. But it isn't that I'm basically good and those things are there. No, there's part of me that's attracted because there's evil. Well, the antidote to plausible arguments is our knowing God's truth, our knowing God's character, knowing what God says about us, but you can't leave out this last one, our loving God. So knowing God's truth and his character and what God says, but also loving God is the antidote. Let me finish with these thoughts. <clears throat> Because the Apostle Paul was filled with love for God and love for other people. But let me just pause there. You might think, oh, he's an apostle. He's a super spiritual guy. Well, of course he's going to love other people. Think about how the book of Acts describes Saul when he is first written about. He's not a loving guy. He's on a rampage. He hates Christians. He thinks they're all heretics. He totally approves of the murder of Stephen, one of the deacons in the church. And then he goes hunting out Christians, throwing them in jail, and just creating all kinds of havoc. 
There's no love there. What happened? Jesus interrupted his life and turned it upside down and totally changed him. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus where he's going to try to duplicate what he'd done in Jerusalem in another city. Turns everything upside down and says, Paul, the people you hate, you, you love to hate, those Gentiles, you're going to give them my message. <clears throat> and God changed him into someone who loved God and loved other people. Well, because Paul loved, was filled with the love for God and love for other people, and because he trusted God's sovereign goodness, Paul willingly suffered so that others could hear the good news of God's rescue through Jesus. Willingly suffered so that he could serve them and help them. And God's call is for you and I to join Paul, but not just join Paul, because Paul was joining Jesus in loving others and serving others and helping others and rescuing others, even when it hurts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in this, as in so many things, you lead us. You're the first. You're the one who decided before the creation of the world that Jesus would come and live and die, <clears throat> rise again, take our sin on himself, that you would punish him so that you would be just, so that just in justice being satisfied, you could then show mercy and kindness and love. Lord, we thank you for that. We ask that you would work in us and fill us with not only love for you, but love for others. And have that willingness to step into uncomfortable, difficult situations and circumstances because we love others and we want to be used by you. And Lord, help us to see how you have already done that for us through others. Maybe we didn't like what they said or didn't understand. You've loved us, not just directly, but through others already. Lord, we pray that you'd work in us. Help us to see how much you love and care and how you've used others to help us and work in us to give you thanks. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.